And for the gospel reading. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at the 38th verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. <clears throat> for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Yes, please be seated. Let's pray. Loving God, may the words that I speak and the reflection of all our hearts and minds equip us for pe as people who love as we have been loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have heard it said, but I say to you, we're in the section of the Sermon of the Mount that comprises six antitheses or contrasts, six sayings where Jesus begins, you have heard that it was said, and then follows it with, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said to whom? Well, right at the beginning of this section, it says, by the ancients, you have heard it said. Uh, you've heard that it was said to the ancients. Well, who were the ancients? Well, probably, possibly, Moses and the community at Sinai, possibly Joshua and his contemporaries, or even people in that phase of the oral tradition that came in between the Old and New Testaments. There's a rhetorical pattern that's established and that becomes the device by which Jesus makes his point, these six important points. But in hearing that, we have to be careful that we don't set Jesus against what the Old Testament was saying. Matthew has already made it clear in the preceding passage that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. Our Western understanding of law 
including God's law, can lead us down a very legalistic path that was not the intention. The word used for law means instruction. The Torah was like a revelation of God's will. It was to be a gift, not a burden, since it presumed the appearance of God's love and provision to God's people and to all people, as we heard in the reading. Living and behaving in accordance with Torah is the privileged way of responding to God, the Creator, who entered into a covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. So the antithesis, you have heard it said, but I say to you, passages, are intended to show what the fulfilment of the Torah looks like. Matthew wanted to show that Jesus interpreted the Torah in a way that led to its ultimate purpose and fullness. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a phrase that we find in Exodus, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. It's the law of retaliation and its purpose was to keep revenge within certain limits and to avoid escalation of violence. This Old Testament expression affirms personal responsibility for one's actions. It affirms the equality of all people before the law and it affirms a just proportion between crime and punishment. It's actually doubtful that this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was still in effect in Jesus' time. So this is an antithesis that regards that, that is about non-retaliation. It urges Jesus' followers to opt out of the process of retaliation through violence, demanding that brutality and force be met, not with hostility, but with goodness. The word that's used for evildoer probably refers to one who does evil, not necessarily um, a social or political idea or group of people, but possibly more on a one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship. And turning the right cheek indicates that there's a blow from the back of the left hand of an assailant, which is more of an insult than an act of violence. So you can see that the Jewish audience, the Jewish Christians that Matthew is writing to will understand these things far more easily than we do. But then we come to, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning because possibly that's the toughest. A lady before the 7.30 service said to me, she, she asked me before she came in, and what are we talking about today? And I said, oh, we're talking about loving your enemies. And she said, oh. And she said, there are times when I have prayed to God, 
I'm very happy to forgive my enemies, but can you please just make one exception? And she said, God always responds, no, that one is the one that you need to love and forgive, especially. Hmm. This antithesis concerning neighbor urges Jesus' followers to love in a way that includes even enemies, since God's love and care extends to everyone. We are encouraged to avoid restricting love only to those who can benefit us or who already love us. To love your neighbour comes from, is drawn from Leviticus. There is actually no law anywhere in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemy. So that's, that little phrase is a bit of a conundrum for biblical scholars, so we don't have to sort it out this morning. The effect of Jesus' teaching then is to break through the limitations imposed on the object of our love and to break the cycle of hatred and violence. Enemy, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? But I wonder what's meant there. Well, the New Testament word that's translated enemy most closely aligns with the Old Testament word that means one who is being hostile. So again, it more closely aligns with the idea of a personal enemy rather than a national enemy. It's not the neighbouring tribe. It's not a race of people. It is more about our personal um, relationships and the, the personal enemies that we encounter. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The whole passage ends with encouragement to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Well... That's really difficult too, isn't it? And Stuart and I, I think, have both talked before about the pursuit of perfection isn't actually the focus of our Christian life. And for many of us, the pursuit of perfection only ties us up in knots and takes us to places where we actually didn't mean to go. Perfection here relates to wholeness. Be whole as your heavenly Father makes whole all things through love. So Matthew is not setting out to contrast Jewish legalism with Christian love. Matthew's setting out to show us how Jesus came to be the fulfillment of all that had gone before and to make it clear to us how then we should live. So how about us 2,000 years later? How do we turn the other cheek and love our enemies? How do we do this? Because to love someone who has wronged us or is hostile towards us is a complicated business. It requires engagement from every part of our being. 
When someone is hostile towards us, we feel it in our body. There's tension. We might have something going on in our gut that we might call butterflies or feeling sick. We feel tense. We might have a headache. We might shake. We might sweat. There are all kinds of ways that our body responds when someone is being hostile in a personal way towards us. Our body feels wronged and all kinds of physical signs and responses tell us that all is not well. And then our emotions rise up, good old emotions, and they sometimes get the better of us. We feel really strongly and perhaps we may feel anger, possibly we'll feel anger, we may feel fear. And then our mind starts rationalising, this is unjust, this is wrong, it's harmful, it's destructive, it's abusive. And we need to uphold a particular morality or a code of behaviour. So our mind starts to process how we might do that. And then spiritually, we may feel confused or conflicted because on the one hand, we do want to love God as we have been loved, but on the other, we may actually feel abandoned by God or we may feel that it is, like the lady this morning, it really just is impossible to forgive or love our enemy. So loving our enemy, it seems, isn't a simple task and we don't need to make it simple. It's not specifically a spiritual task and it's not specifically an emotional or an intellectual task. Psychologist Steve Bidolf has a really helpful metaphor that he uses when working with clients, especially those experiencing some kind of anxiety and even with people um, suffering severe PTSD. He describes a human as a four-storey mansion. He says that to live in a way that is fully human, we continually move before the four storeys of this mansion, and we don't get stuck on one floor alone. As we appreciate who we are in this way, then the findings of neuroscience and the application of therapeutic intervention techniques that we have wonderful access to today can provide help and a way for people to reconcile what's happening to them. So what are these four stories of the mansion that is you? Well, on the ground floor is your physical body. It acts and it senses, and I've talked about some of the ways that it senses. It has particular needs, and when we ignore those needs for food, for sleep, for shelter, for affection, things don't go well. It's hard for us to respond meaningfully to others. And then there's the next story, and this is our emotions. Emotions are more than just things we feel. Emotions mean something. They tell us deep truths about ourselves and what's happening to us. They can deplete us if they're overwhelming. They can also energize us. They are a kind of super sense. They're a kind of intelligence. 
most psychologists agree that there are pretty much four main emotions, anger, fear, joy, and sadness. And paying attention to these, we can understand why they are there and how they might help us, especially when we're in conflict, especially when we're faced with hostility, especially when we're trying to deal with our enemy. Going up to the next story brings us to the domain of the mind. Thinking is the way that we make sense of our world and we communicate with others. Listening and changing in response to the thoughts of others helps us to relate to them. It also helps us to change our perspective if that's necessary, to have a bit of a perspective update, if you like. And then finally, there's the fourth story of this beautiful mansion, that is you. And Steve Bidolf describes it as a beautiful open-air balcony on the top of this building. It's a safe place to be, but it's an expansive place to be. This is the story where we find our soul or our spirituality, whatever language you would like to use to describe that. And there'll be lots of different opinions about that because there are probably as many different opinions about that as there are people. But it's this space of the soul. Instead of only thinking down into our body and our mind and our emotions, it's a space where we can think upwards and outwards to the world, to the people that we engage with, and even beyond to the sky and the stars and the hugeness of everything. When we stand on this balcony, though, we can make two mistakes. One is to think that we are inconsequential in the overall scheme of things, that we don't matter. And the second is that we sometimes feel alone and feel that we're in a small piece of an uncaring world. Steve Bidoff says, and I'm happy to quote him because it's also what Jesus says, is that no one is inconsequential and no one is separate from all that is happening, that every person matters and every person has a place and a connection in the bigness of things. We are going somewhere big. Our lives will thrive when we realize this. And when we acknowledge that our faith doesn't simply belong in one domain of our lives, that our faith is embodied. Our faith influences every part of our being. And that was Jesus' point. When we align our heart and soul and mind and strength, that's the Old Testament language and the language um, of Jesus, we are able to do extraordinary things like speaking well of an enemy, remembering that our enemy always has a story. As somebody left at 7.30, they said to me, they remember a colleague um, who used to say, I don't like that person either. I find them really difficult. 
but no one will ever know that. Isn't that a profound comment? It's a great place of maturity to, to be amongst colleagues. One of the things that took me a while to figure out as a young physiotherapist working in a hospital was that when someone became aggressive towards me, it was usually more about them than me. You see, it hardly ever happened, and I didn't know how to deal with it. But I do remember one of my supervisors taking a particular dislike to me, and I really struggled with it. I had no idea why. A colleague was able to say to me, I think she feels threatened by you, which I thought was absolutely ridiculous because here's this really, prof um, this really skilled person with a wealth of experience. She was really highly regarded, but there was something about me and the way that I was in the space that threatened her. And I think many of you may have experienced that at times too. And you understand that actually the hostility is about the other person. So what are we to do in that space? Learn something of the other person's story. I did. I learned something of this woman's story and then I better understood how I could be with her. And our relationship changed completely. Sometimes people become our enemy simply because we catch them on their worst day. We catch them in their worst moment. How are we on our worst day, in our worst moment? And is that a time that we would like someone to encounter us and to have a pervasive memory of their encounter? I find that very challenging, that thought. When we align our body, mind, emotions and spirituality, our heart, soul, mind and strength, we are also able to do other extraordinary things like forgiving our enemies. Remember Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Have compassion on them. They're doing the best with what they have. However, sometimes people do know what they're doing. So what do we do with that? How can we be loving and show compassion towards a person who is intentionally doing the wrong thing, the hurtful thing, the hostile or abusive thing? Loving our enemies doesn't negate the need for justice and calling wrongdoing to account. Wishing the best for our enemies is not, to, is not a cop-out from addressing injustice or abuse or any kind of wrongdoing or evil doing. Love never condones what is wrong. Rather, love gives us the strength to see people differently it gives us the strength to have courage and to take action when we encounter evil behavior. The kind of love that allows us to love our enemies is a love that comprises grace and forgiveness and compassion and wisdom. So today, 
Difficult question. Who is your enemy that you are challenged to love? And is there a possibility that it could be you? You know that old saying that he or she is their own worst enemy? Are there times when you feel like your own worst enemy and you are actually the one who needs to be shown grace and forgiveness and compassion by you? Is that how I need to be with me? We've thought about love previously as desiring the best for another person. Love includes the preoccupying and strong desire for further connection. It's a commitment to loyalty and to faithfulness. And of course, there's that very special kind of love that includes intimacy and that is reserved for a select few for those who are closest to us. Brene Brown has done some wonderful research into these kinds of things. And her research sums up how we cultivate love in this way. We cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known. And when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Be perfect, hold all things in love as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is our task as we pay attention to what is happening in our hearts, our souls, our mind, in our bodies, as we encounter those who would, we would consider hostile. How can we desire the best for that person while not tolerating what might be destructive about their behaviour? It's a big question to leave you all with, but I think it deserves some time and reflection. May we all grow into the maturity of being able to love not only those who love us, but also those who disagree with us, find us difficult, or who behave wrongly towards us or those we love. Amen.